join me, if you are able, in professing our common faith through the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, after that song we just sang, I have left less to preach on. In fact, this this whole sermon will just be an echo of that song. We've been journeying through the Apostles' Creed, this summary of Christian faith that has united believers across nations and generations for almost 2,000 years. And today we've come to the end. And the Creed climaxes with assurance and hope, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Most scholars agree that this is a shorthand description of the comprehensive nature of salvation. Salvation is an incredibly rich, multifaceted, all-inclusive reality that no single word or phrase or image could possibly capture. Which is why uh, the Bible gives us a kaleidoscope of images to depict salvation. Words like redemption, reconciliation, peace, rescue, renewal, cleansing, forgiveness, adoption, eternal life, and dozens more. Today we're going to explore how salvation is holistic, unfolding, and cosmic. That's where we're going today. Salvation is holistic. Sadly, for the past hundred years, churches in the West have been arguing about what salvation is all about. Some say that salvation means being reconciled to God. It comes by hearing and responding to the gospel with repentance and faith. And therefore, the church should focus all of its energy on preaching the gospel and making disciples, and everything else is a distraction from that goal. Others say, no, 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 no. Salvation is about bringing healing to bodies and relationships and communities, transforming poverty and brokenness into abundance and wholeness. And therefore, the church should be all about doing justice in the world. Who's right? According to the creed, the whole debate is nonsense. 
because salvation is all of this and more. For sure, salvation includes the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. But the creed also celebrates the resurrection of the body. Life transformed by the power of heaven. Jesus was raised physically. The post-resurrection accounts of Jesus are really interesting. Uh, There appears to be both continuity and discontinuity between Jesus' mortal body and his resurrected body. People who knew Jesus before he died and rose again had trouble recognizing him after the resurrection. And then there's this moment of recognition. For Mary, it was when Jesus said her name. For the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it was when Jesus broke bread with them. For Thomas, it was when Jesus let him touch his wounds. According to the Apostle John, the resurrected Jesus ate breakfast, like he always did, but also walked through locked doors. Continuity and discontinuity. The Apostle Paul compares Jesus' body before and after to the relationship between a seed and a plant. Everything that that plant is going to be is already inside of the seed, but they're different. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. This image of planting a dead seed and raising a live plant is a mere sketch at best, but perhaps it will help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body. But only if you keep in mind that when we are raised, we're raised for good, alive forever. The corpse that's planted is no beauty, but... When it's raised, it's glorious. Put in the ground weak, it comes up powerful. The seed sown is natural. The seed grown is supernatural. Same seed, same body. But what a difference from when it goes down in physical mortality to when it is raised up in spiritual immortality. Science tells us, this is kind of cool, that every seven, every, every seven years, Every single cell in your body is replaced, every single one, which means that you are literally a different person than you were seven years ago, and yet you're the same person. Isn't that mysterious? The Bill who stood before you seven years ago no longer exists, and yet here I am. (laughs) Crazy, right? I don't understand it, but maybe it's a clue as to how this resurrection thing works, that we can be wholly different and yet the same. Of course, Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning, just the first fruits of a great harvest, because all who are united with Jesus in his death will one day share in his resurrection. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, we are waiting eagerly for a liberator our Lord Jesus Christ, to come and transform these humble earthly bodies into the form of his glorious body. 
First John 3, 2 says, When Christ is openly revealed, we will see him, and in seeing him, become like him. You'll still be you, of course, but you'll be like him. And your new glorious body will be incorruptible, incapable of becoming sick or injured or dying. Why does this matter? It matters because God cares about more than just your soul. He cares about more than just your relationship with him. The resurrection means that everything about you matters. Your body matters. Your physical needs matter. Your work matters. What you create matters. Your relationships matter. The resurrection means that every single part of you is sacred. Every part of you matters to God, and therefore, it should matter to us. Part of the college church statement of faith says, we believe that Jesus Christ commanded all believers to proclaim the gospel throughout the world and to make disciples of every nation. We also believe that the gospel has to do with the whole person. And therefore, our responsibility entails an involvement in the social dimension of the human condition as well as the spiritual. Salvation is holistic. It touches every part of our lives. Earlier this morning, we read the Magnificat, right? Mary's song. If we asked Mary, what is salvation? What do you think she would say? She would say salvation is God humbling the proud and lifting up the humble. Salvation is God remembering to show mercy to those who put their hope in him. If we ask Moses' sister Miriam, what is salvation? She might say that salvation is God literally drowning her oppressors and leading her people to safety. If we ask Ruth, what is salvation? She would say, salvation is God rescuing me from shame, from grief, from economic vulnerability. It's God giving me a fresh start and sustaining me in my old age. If we ask Esther what is salvation, she would say, salvation is God rescuing my people from genocide and slavery and unraveling the one who plotted against us. If we ask Mary and Martha what is salvation, they would say, salvation is the resurrection and the life walking into our hometown and raising our brother from the dead. If we ask the woman who was caught in adultery what is salvation, she would say, salvation is Jesus taking away my shame and scattering those who condemn me. What if I asked you, what would you say? One of the words that scripture often uses to depict salvation is deliverance, rescue. God delivers people from their enemies and physical danger, from death, disability, and demonic powers, from illness and impurity, famine and poverty, injustice, exclusion and false accusations, guilt and shame, sin and its consequences. Salvation is deliverance from everything within you and around you that is marred, that is tainted by sin, by evil. Salvation is holistic. Jesus ministered to the whole person, body, mind, soul, relationships, circumstances. And so should we, if we call ourselves the church. 
Salvation is unfolding. It doesn't happen all at once, does it? I've been following Jesus for decades, and there are parts of me that are still broken. Some Christians love to ask the question, when were you saved? If someone asks you that, don't be offended. It means, when did you decide to follow Jesus? When did you admit that you needed help? And some of us can probably name the day. Some of us can name the time with ridiculous precision. Others of us, it just kind of happened gradually over time. We can't pinpoint it. But either way, your salvation began in the past. And yet it's still unfolding in the present. And most of it is still in the future. I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. This week I read about a man who was asked, when were you saved? And he said, well, I was saved 2,000 years ago, but I only recently found out about it. Maybe it goes back even further than that. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So maybe you were saved 13 billion years ago or more. The New Testament also talks about salvation in the present tense. Paul says that we inwardly are being renewed day by day. And we are becoming more like Jesus with ever-increasing glory as we walk in the Spirit. The cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. And continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The Apostle John says, The blood of Christ cleanses us as we confess our sins to one another. Salvation is happening right here, right now. As we surrender control over our lives to Jesus, salvation begins to unfold in us. Not all at once, but gradually. After a while, you begin to realize, I'm less anxious and fearful than I used to be. I'm less reactive. I'm less wrapped up in myself. I'm more approachable, more interruptible than I used to be, more patient more generous and responsive and tuned to the needs of others, more humble, more gentle, more forgiving. What's happening to me? You're being saved. God is bringing you step by step into greater harmony with himself. He's releasing you from your old preoccupation with yourself and awakening in your life this amazing capacity for self-giving love. I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. First Peter 1 says that salvation will be revealed. Second Peter 4 says that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul speaks often of the hope of our salvation. Remember little orphan Annie? She steps into Oliver Warbuck's home. And she realizes how wealthy he is. And she begins to wrap her mind around all the amenities, all the opportunities that are available to her. I think I'm gonna like it here, right? And yet she's barely even begun to taste and see what it means to be adopted, to have a home, 
to have a family. If you've been following Jesus for 60 years, you've barely crossed the threshold. There's so much more to see. There's so much more to take in. This notion that so much of our salvation is still in the future is really important. Because even though Jesus has dealt sin and death and the devil a fatal blow, the powers of darkness are still thrashing about. You know, when you cut the head off of a snake, its body goes crazy for a few minutes. Evil is still running amok, still exerting influence in the world and in our lives. The, kingdom, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God are still in conflict. They're still warring for our attention and our allegiance. Our hope is that one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Until that day, our salvation is incomplete. Until that day, there's a gap between who we are and who we will be in the future. This fall at youth group, our middle schoolers have been wrestling with the question, who am I? And what does it mean for us to have a Christ-centered identity? And we've talked about the labels that people slap on us or the labels maybe we put on ourselves. And we invited the students to do this activity and, and maybe you could try it. But take out a piece of paper and map your identity on that paper. We said for every part of your identity, draw a bubble. If it's a big part of who you are, draw a big bubble. If it's a smaller part of who you are, make it a small bubble. And as you're drawing your map, ask yourself, are any of these bubbles too big or too small? For instance, are you leaning too hard on the fact that you're the smart one? Or you're the funny one? You're the talented one? You're the stupid one? Are these labels, are these bubbles limiting you? Pigeonholing you? And then we ask, are there things that you would like to become that you haven't become yet? Draw that bubble in a different color. That's an aspirational bubble. So for instance, I said, I would like to become more patient. I would like to become more prayerful. And after we finished mapping our identities, we read from 1 John chapter 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is who we are. That's our core identity, okay? That should be our biggest bubble by far. If it isn't, then we are living out of a false self. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The reason people label us the reason people typecast us, the reason people limit us is because they do not recognize God's image inside of us. People are always trying to define us apart from God, apart from our belovedness. And then verse 2 says, Dear friends, right now we are already children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. Right now, we are God's children, but we are not yet what we will be. One day, we will be just like Jesus. We'll still be ourselves, but we'll also be like him. C.S. Lewis says that if we could see each other now, like we'll be then, when we're glorified, we would be tempted to worship each other. That's how beautiful and glorious we're going to be. Someday the gap between who we are and who we were meant to be, who we will be, is going to close. All the right bubbles are going to be there on our page in all the right proportions. Salvation is holistic. It touches every single part of us. Salvation is unfolding. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. Thirdly, salvation is cosmic. I've talked with, uh, with several people lately who said something to the effect of, I, I don't feel at home. Something feels off. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. It, it feels like our culture is slowly devouring itself. Nothing feels right. Have you felt that recently? Yeah, you're not alone. One of the themes that runs throughout the biblical story is the theme of exile and homecoming. We were made for Eden. We were made for paradise, for shalom, for harmony and peace. We've lost that, and we long for it. And even though this world is the only world we've ever known, on some level it never quite feels like home. Why? C.S. Lewis says if we don't feel at home in this world, it must be because we were made for another world. The band U2 back in the day captures this experience of exile so well. I have climbed highest mountains I've run through the fields. I've kissed honey lips. I've spoke with the tongues of angels. I believe in the kingdom come. You broke the bonds. You loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Even the best friends, even the best families still let us down. Even the best vacations still disappoint us. Even the best homes don't always feel like homes. Why? Because we're in exile. Because we're restless wanderers, searching for, longing for our true home. It's not just us who experience this. Romans 8 says that the whole creation is groaning. The whole earth is waiting to be liberated from its bondage to death and decay. The good news, friends, is that salvation is cosmic. Not only will it touch and restore every part of our lives, it will encompass and include all of creation. And God says through the prophet Isaiah, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. 
but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. And you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. A place of joy and delight with no weeping, no crying, no pain. A place of intimacy and immediacy where God answers us before we even call. A place of harmony where the wolf and the lamb feed together. Where all the disparate pieces of the universe snap into place. God is going to create a new Eden space. A place of flourishing and delight, of harmony and peace with no enmity and no strife where everyone lives in right relationship with each other. Right now, there's, there's heaven and there's earth, right? There's God's space and our space, the ideal and the real. The hope of the gospel is that when Jesus returns, heaven is going to come down and overlap with the earth so that the two become one, so that the ideal becomes real, so that God's space becomes our space. We saw glimpses of this when Jesus came to dwell among us. We still see glimpses of it today if you look closely. In order for this Eden space to open up, God must judge the earth. He must quarantine evil so that evil no longer tyrannizes the world that he loves and longs to heal so that we can feel at home again. Revelation 21.3 says, And I look, I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God's dream is to dwell with his renewed people in his renewed creation forever. C.S. Lewis brings the Chronicles of Narnia to a close with this scene. Aslan, the lion and the Christ figure in the story, speaks softly to the children. There was a real railway accident. Your father and mother and all of you are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, 
he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that, he be, that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The Apostle Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has ever conceived the glorious things which God has prepared for those who love him. Salvation is holistic, unfolding, and cosmic. Why does it matter that we believe this? What practical difference does it make in the here and now? Let me mention two implications. First, belief in God's comprehensive salvation liberates us. It really does make us free. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this world, if this life is all there is, then why not try to squeeze every drop of pleasure from it that we can? Why not do whatever it takes to secure ourselves and preserve our days? But if the resurrection is real, if there really is a Savior who will come and make all things new, if there really is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, then guess what? We can take risks. We can make sacrifices. We can deny ourselves. We can be radically generous. We can stick our necks out for those who aren't getting a fair shake. We can stop managing risk and stop prioritizing our security. We don't have to squeeze every drop of pleasure out of this life. Why? Because it's not our only life. It's not even our best life. It's just the title page. Hope in this holistic, unfolding, cosmic salvation liberates us so that we can take risks. So that we can give extravagantly. So that we can love wastefully all our days. Second, belief in God's comprehensive salvation sustains us. It keeps us going. When our son Brennan was younger, he was not a big fan of suspense. Most kids love watching Disney movies. Brennan did not. Every time something went wrong, Brennan would tense up. For him, every chase scene, every evil plot, every close call was an emotional roller coaster, and Brennan would either have to leave the room or hide behind a chair. So Beth and I developed a strategy for watching movies with Brennan. Before the movie started, we'd say, all right, Brennan, Nemo was caught by a fisherman, and his daddy's trying to find him. It won't be easy. There will be many dangers, but guess what? He's going to find him, and Nemo's going to be safe. And so when the shark chases Nemo's father, we'd say, don't worry, Brennan. The shark won't get him. 
Nemo's daddy will be fine, you'll see. And we keep repeating those assurances over and over and for a while, reminding Brennan of the happy ending was the only thing that got him through the scary middle. The setbacks and the danger and the suspense. And guess what, friends? We are all five-year-old Brennan and Jesus knows it. We tense up when we get bad news. We're thrown for a loop when we encounter setbacks. We doubt and we worry when evil and suffering seem to be getting the upper hand. But if we know the God who saves, who rules over all things, who knows the number of hairs on our head, guess what? We can respond to the setbacks with confidence, with peace. We can face any obstacles without despairing or giving up. We can play our part in God's story no matter what sorrow or resistance we face along the way. Why? Because we have a Savior who holds our hand through every scene, who assures us, saying, there's no need to worry. I've got this. It's going to be all right in the end. Right now, things look pretty bleak. Right now, there doesn't seem to be very much hope. But I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. The king returns. The enemies are defeated. The city is restored, and the people rejoice. Just you wait. Just you wait. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of salvation. For the price that you paid years ago when Jesus went to the cross in our place. For the deposit of your Holy Spirit even now, securing us in your love, reminding us that we are your children and making us more like Jesus. And for the promise of future grace, of the restoration of all things, of life with you, as we sing, may hope swell in our lives. As we meditate on your past work, your presence with us, in the here and now, and that great day when you will wipe every tear from our eyes and make all things new. May our confidence, our peace, and our love grow. In Jesus' name, amen.